0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Hello. Just so you know, this episode was recorded before the Supreme Court document regarding abortion law was leaked, but we will address it in an insert at the end of the interview. Hello, and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. President Joe Biden's approval rating went underwater last August, and it is yet to resurface. According to the latest 538 poll of polls, 42% approve of his job performance and 53% disapprove. The midterm elections in November are looking grim for Democrats. Yet Biden is still expected to run for office again in 2024, when he will be 81. And his most likely Republican opponent is 78-year-old Donald Trump. With me to discuss Biden's presidency and what happens next is Dr. Thomas Gift, Associate Professor of Political Science at the School of Public Policy at UCL and Founding Director of the Center on US Politics. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Dorian. It's great to be with you. Nobody likes making predictions, but I like making people make predictions. Mm -hmm. Do you think a Biden-Trump rematch is, at this stage,
2: the most probable scenario for 2024? Well, I'm always hesitant to make predictions, but I think that it is. You know, on the Democratic side, you could always say that Joe Biden is maybe not the best position to run in 2024, but I'm not sure if there are any alternative Democrats that would gives that party a a better shot at winning the presidency. So, you know, barring any health concerns or other unforeseen circumstances, I think you would have to say that he is the favorite. I certainly wouldn't put money on that, but I think he is the favorite to run again. And on the Republican side, I, I absolutely think that Donald Trump has to be considered the most likely candidate at this point. Again, the bigger question for me is whether he's going to run or not. But I can't, at least at this point, see any other Republican kind of knocking him off as, as the most likely contender. So I think we might be looking forward to a rematch of 2020. You mentioned that you, you didn't think that there was another Democratic contender that would, that
1: would be stronger, that would have a better chance. Is that just incumbency advantage or does Biden still have certain qualities that set
2: him apart from the rest? Well, you know, I think that uh, there, if you look at kind of the democratic field right now, I just don't see a very deep bench. I mean, kind of the, the main alternative that you would think of, of course, is Kamala Harris being VP. That would be a natural. Fit to kind of slot in for Biden if he decided not to run but if you look at her poll numbers uh, I think that they are probably about the same level as Joe biden or maybe even less I think that she has just not impressed um, a lot of Americans with her performance thus far i mean you could think of some other possible candidates as well kind of going down the list who were contending in 2020 and I just don't think for for many of the same reasons that they failed to get the nomination in 2020 that they would do particularly well. And so, you know, I think Joe Biden still remains kind of the, the one candidate that can uh, appeal to moderates um, within the party. And, you know, even if progressives can't get too enthusiastic about him, maybe at least they, they show that they would show up for him, you know, in the polls. I mean, that's kind of what happened in, in twenty twenty. Mm. So if you're thinking about a rematch, I think you have to go with the, the person who won. So
1: what, what did happen with, with Kamala Harris? Because there was definitely talk, you know, that she was a, a likely contender in 2024. I'll get to, you know, the, the initial kind of sense of whether Biden was going to serve for one or, or two terms. But just, just what, what happened to Harris? Has she not been able to find a role, which is, of course, notoriously tricky for vice presidents?
2: Well, I think that there are a couple of points. One is, you know, I don't think, if I'm being totally honest, that Kamala Harris was, you know, the, the best politician to begin with. I mean, there was a reason why she flamed out earlier than any of the other contenders in the Democratic field dating back to, to 2020. You know, she had a lot of hype uh, surrounding her candidacy, but very early on, she failed to get much traction in the polls, didn't raise much money, and had to, to get out of that race. Joe Biden kind of did uh, select her for various reasons. I, I think that, you know, that he was smart to to do so. She kind of appealed to key demographics that um, he was looking to uh, going into 2020. But, you know, even aside from that, I think she, you know, has had a number of different gaffes during her time in office. I also think that the Biden administration has kind of put her in a position where she hasn't had a very clear portfolio. I mean, early on, she was kind of given this role of addressing some of the root causes uh, of immigration coming in from the the southern border of the United States. But by and large, just kind of has stayed out of the limelight. And I think, again, because some of the political gaffes that she has made, statements here, here and there, Biden has kind of been pretty much content to keep her on the sidelines. And so she just hasn't had as much of a chance to, to shine.
1: Now, I seem to remember Biden in 2020 giving the impression that he would only serve one term in the White House, you know, due to his, his age. Was that just a, an assumption, not just on my part? Because I remember that this was shared by, by a lot of people.
2: Like, what did he actually say on that and how much did people just sort of project I think a lot of it was projecting. I mean, I think it was reasonable projecting, but I don't think he ever explicitly said, I'm just going to come in uh, and be a a one term president. And and he didn't do that for, you know, a number of different reasons, Uh, one of which is that it would almost immediately make him kind of a lame duck president. And so, you know, if you know that you're not going to be reelected in you know, 2024, go up for re-election in 2024. I think that takes some of your political capital out. So he's always been kind of reluctant to kind of do that. And so I think there was just sort of an assumption that he was going to be a placeholder candidate. The Democrats were looking for someone who could defeat Donald Trump. He kind of fit that bill. And then he would kind of go in, return things to a degree of normalcy after four very turbulent years of, uh, of Donald Trump. And then, you know, we would look to kind of the the next logical candidate, whether that was Kamala Harris or, or someone else. But, you know, since, since kind of the early going, Joe Biden has insisted that he's going to uh, run again in 2024. He's kind of given every indication that that's going to be the case. Again, I still wouldn't put money on it. I think a, a lot can happen, but, you know, I think most of this has just kind of been projection, kind of just an assumption that he wouldn't run again. Does
1: the problem? I mean, obviously, if he's up against Trump you know, again, then the the idea of being the man who can beat Trump becomes powerful again. But I mean, he has he has returned normalcy to to the government. He sort of has done that job, but seems to be sort of struggling to inspire people in other ways. So how? I know, how trepidatious would the Democrats be going into a presidential election with somebody who, you know, sort of did that, did that initial job in year one, but doesn't seem to be projecting much of a vision, doesn't seem to be projecting much dynamism. Like, what, what can they
2: go to the country with, you know, for, for four more years? Exactly. I mean, I think a lot of this does depend on whether Donald Trump decides to run again. And that may actually be a factor in whether Joe Biden decides to run again. I think the more likely that you know Trump is to run, and if he gets in the race, I think that, that Biden would be more likely to, to, to run again. But you're right. I mean, for, for Joe Biden, you're looking at approval numbers that are very low, um, a number of different Challenges that he has been presented with, uh, and some, you know, critics would say, have caused during his first year in office. So I think there would be a lot of concern about um, whether he would be able to win again. I mean, I think if Donald Trump is not the nominee for for the Republicans, then it, it really becomes kind of a referendum on Joe Biden's presidency. And if I were Democrats, I wouldn't be too confident about kind of, you know, winning winning it the election in that scenario. If Donald Trump does run again, though, I think it becomes less just a referendum of how voters think about the last four years and more, well, do I prefer Joe Biden or do I prefer Donald Trump? Um, I think that there would be fewer undecided voters than last time. Again, I think most people have kind of made up their mind whether they like Donald Trump or not. It becomes more kind of a an issue of kind of political mobilization and and which side is able to get out out their base. But I I think part of this does depend on what the eventual matchup becomes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: How much is Biden to blame, do you think, for his current problems? And how much is circumstances that, uh, that are out of his hands? And the president can never really say that things are out of his hands, but, but some are.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly Joe Biden inherited a very difficult situation. I mean, kind of at home, extreme levels of partisan polarization and all of the the mayhem that emerged from four very difficult years under Donald Trump. I mean, the notion that he was going to cure partisan polarization, for example, in a relatively short period of time. It just wasn't going to happen. I think he's kind of made inroads that he can, tried to make incremental progress. And I think for the most part, he's been relatively successful in doing that. But you can't expect too much there. Now, I think there are some issues that were kind of relatively self-inflicted, but have also been exacerbated by circumstances outside of Joe Biden's control. And and here, I, I think Most specifically about kind of inflation, you know, 7% inflation, 8% inflation, highest inflation that the country has seen in four decades. You know, a lot of economists have argued that the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that Joe Biden pushed, part of the COVID kind of relief agenda that he had, contributed to inflation. And I think there's kind of very little doubt that that is the case. Um, At the same time, we have seen kind of global supply chain challenges, which has led to inflation, not just in the United States and North America, but also in Europe. So that's kind of contributing to the problem. Of course, the, the, the war in Ukraine um, has not done anything to help that either. So I think it's it's kind of been a combination that he's kind of been dealt a very difficult set of cards. You know, he has maybe not made the right step on on all of these particular issues. But, you know, there have also been some challenges that are kind of outside of his control that have contributed probably to his low poll numbers.
1: Because people who, who follow U.S. politics at all closely will be aware that he's got, uh, Democrats have a narrow majority in the Senate and the sort of conservative Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, keep blocking things that the administration wants to do. That seems to be a political reality. But is that something that's just impossible to explain to the average voter, that it appears like sort of blame-shifting or that they don't really care about the arithmetic? Because that seems to be... If you give him another two seats in the Senate, suddenly everything seems to
2: change. Yeah, I mean, I think that... There's limits to what Joe Biden can do in pushing a progressive agenda simply by virtue of the map that you just described. I mean, I think any notion that Joe Manchin in particular was going to go along, for example, with Build Back Better or kind of this massive human infrastructure project was probably wishful thinking from the get go. Right. And so maybe on the margins, Joe Biden could kind of, you know, take a, a slightly different approach. I mean, some critics have essentially said that he should abandon these more kind of am, ambitious goals on, on climate change, on infrastructure, on healthcare, and so on, and try to push forward kind of more uh, modest set uh, of packages where you could get the moderates on board. But of course, if you do that, then you risk alienating progressives who are kind of the, the core base of the the president's support right now. So he's in this very difficult situation where kind of has to, to strike this balance and kind of thread this needle that is almost impossible, because, you know, if there's one thing that we know, it's that Joe Biden is receiving opposition, not just from the Republican side, but also from the very kind of polarized Intraparty fractionalization uh, that we see within the Democratic Party. I mean, progressives and moderates just are not able to get on the same page. There's very little that Joe Biden can do there. Yes, maybe he could kind of finagle you know his colleagues on Capitol Hill to kind of do more here and there. But by and large, yeah, it, it's just a, a very difficult situation. I think that this was even made kind of more difficult for Joe Biden politically by virtue of the fact that they do have 50 members. In the Senate, so you might think, well, you have a de facto majority here; you should kind of be able to get through a more ambitious agenda. But really, what you have is kind of 48 Democrats who are willing to go along with what he wants, and kind of two, uh, Cinema and Joe Manchin, who are much more willing to kind of put the brakes on it. And in many ways, they're kind of, you know, Republicans when it comes to some fiscal issues. So it's a challenge. And it's going to get worse
1: really after the midterms. Is it, at the moment, is it looking like they will, Democrats
2: will lose both houses? I mean, I think it's, it's very difficult to predict, uh, of course, but I, I'm not optimistic for the Democrats holding either the House or the Senate. And I think probably the most likely scenario, I mean, what I would bet looking at the numbers is that Republicans are going to hold both. Um, and so this makes Joe Biden kind of even more impotent when it comes to trying to to push forward kind of his, his domestic agenda. So I, I think by and large, kind of the things that he has gotten to do to this point is going to kind of be his record for the first term.
1: Well, f- from my point of view, you know, I thought that his leadership on Ukraine, at least initially seemed quite effective. It certainly was the kind of the kind of international solidarity, or at least kind of, you know, Western world solidarity that, that wasn't there in the Trump years. He seems to be making some good calls. Has that helped him at all at home? Do people just not care?
2: Well, I, I think that's fair. I mean, certainly the Ukraine-Russia conflict has kind of dominated the headlines, especially in the last um, few weeks and months. You know, I, I do think For the most part, Joe Biden made a lot of the right calls in kind of the lead up to the invasion by Russia. You know, their intelligence, for the most part, was pretty much spot on. Um, I think they took a number of different steps to kind of promote some of the intelligence, kind of make it transparent. For example, when it came to efforts by Russia to, to kind of create uh, false pretext for, for, for invasion. So I think by and large kind of the administration has handled that relatively well. I mean, you could say that he's, he's made some gaffes on Russia, Ukraine, mm. uh, you know, whenever Joe Biden said that he thought Putin should kind of exit from power, a lot of people say, well, is he calling for regime change? He said, no, this is basically just me kind of projecting my own <laughs> personal views on this. You know, he made that comment about whether, You know, the the consequences that the United States would inflict upon Russia would be less severe. There was only a minor incursion. You know, Joe Biden kind of was out in the forefront calling Putin a war criminal, which some people have suggested maybe was not kind of the the politically um, Mm. best. So there have been kind of issues uh, here and there that you can critique. But, you know, by and large, I, I, I think, you know, Joe Biden has been kind of successful in communicating a coherent message here. Certainly kind of the, the rejuvenation uh, of NATO and the ability of, of, of Biden in concert with others to kind of get... Other Western allies, kind of more or less uh, on board with when it came to kind of sanctions and what the response would be to to Russia's aggression. All that is kind of difficult, I, I think, to critique too much. Of course, you know, people will, will take issue with things here and there, but I, I think all of that kind of takes sort of the back burner vis-a-vis you know other issues that are that are Americans are are kind of facing at home. Again, eight percent inflation, it, it, etc. It's just, it's yeah. just a hard situation right now
1: moving on to the republicans i mean i've seen many many articles since like 2015 with people going well you know that the the sort of trump was an aberration and uh, at some point and the republicans were going to you know get their party back from him and his base now the front runner is the man who was impeached twice and uh, says that the last election was stolen and uh, not just looking at 2024 but but looking to the future i mean is that a party that is that is broken you know on on not broken as an electoral machine but like an, in in an, on a sort of moral commitment to democracy level and relative to what the republican party you know used to be is that just, is it never coming back or, or is it still a question, I wonder, of, of cowardice and that if somehow Trump's popularity uh, w- with the base just plunged or imploded or, you know, he suddenly had a heart attack or something, you know, that, that it would be able to get back on a, on, a, on a kind of saner track or is it too late?
2: Well, I mean, I think parties can always evolve. But if you're thinking about the foreseeable future, the Republican Party is kind of thoroughly the the party of Trump. And so I think that there's very little doubt about that. I mean, any thinking that kind of Trumpism was just going to kind of fade from from uh, the, the foreground or that the party was just going to kind of shift in a kind of more pro-democracy direction and kind of reject some of the, the Trumpian elements uh, of the party. I, I think all that is wrong. I mean, Donald Trump still maintains an incredible grip over the party, whether or not he runs in 2024, kind of this notion of Trumpism and, and what it represents is just so strong. Um, I I just can't think of a a time when we've seen kind of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party being so far uh, apart from one another. And and I don't, uh, you know, I I know some people just say, well, Democrats and Republicans are all kind of the same. They're really not. I mean, uh, one party really is sort of fundamentally, I would say, operating in an anti-democratic fashion right now. You know, I mean, the, the Stop the Steal movement and the continuation of maintaining that the election of 2020 was stolen, January 6th, all the fallout from that. The Republican Party has really not deviated from that. And the fact that kind of Trump still holds such a, a strong grip on the party, I think is is evidence of it. So yeah, I mean, parties always can change, they can evolve. I mean, I wouldn't make projections too far out in the future. But if we're looking to 2024 and kind of the immediate future, it is really the party of Trump. And I think it is operating in many ways in kind of anti-democratic fashion. And if not Trump, if he does just evaporate or something,
1: who do you think is is the strongest? Contender is it? Is it like Ron DeSantis? I mean, there's always, as we see, it depends what time of the in the cycle you're in because people they rise and they fall. And is it? Do you think Ron DeSantis is the strongest, or is there somebody else that you'd be keeping an eye on as a as a possible Trump
2: heir? Well, I think that Ron DeSantis has to be considered kind of the most likely alternative to Donald Trump right now. I mean, he really. Um, has put himself out there and kind of made a name for himself over the past couple of years, particularly with COVID and insisting on keeping Florida open and kind of pushing back against, um, you know, what he suggested was sort of federal overreach from Washington. He's been very active, even in the last few weeks and months, kind of pushing these cultural issues, don't say gay bill, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Florida um, war against Disney, taking kind of anti-critical race theory stances and kind of blowing them up. I mean, everything that he's doing suggests I want to position myself for a race for the presidency, regardless of whether Donald Trump runs or not. I mean, again, I, I think that Donald Trump is the most likely contender. i be very surprised if he doesn't run in 2024. And if it's a Trump versus DeSantis, I really don't think that it's too much of a race. I think Donald Trump would play with that. But, you know, if he doesn't run or something else happens, I I think you'd have to say DeSantis is the most likely um, GOP contender.
1: And Ron DeSantis is a mere, oh my, sickening. He's younger than me. And if you're looking at Biden, who, like I said, would be 81, Trump would be 78. Recently, there were reports that California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's 88, is sort of no longer up to the job. And it's sort of a delicate issue, but it has raised the question, you know, of whether there should be upper age limits for politicians or failing that, whether it was healthy to have one generation so dominant. There's also people like Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. I mean, if if we are looking at that as the most likely scenario in 2024, does American politics have have an age problem
2: yeah i mean it's a really good question i I don't know if I would describe it as an age problem necessarily um but I think that American politics could certainly benefit um from having some younger voices um and and some younger political leaders both both because you kind of think that they're representing a, a different generation i I think it's just you know, this kind of rehashing of, you know, Clinton, you know, dynasty and Bush dynasty. It's just good to get, I think, some different faces and different personalities in in politics. And so, yeah, I mean, thinking about, as you suggested, like a a 2024 race where both individuals are kind of pressing 80 or over 80. Yeah, I I, I think it's probably not the race that uh, most people would like to see, but that's kind of the reality, maybe.
1: Well, we'll see. And um, if, if your prediction is wrong, then I will not hold you on it because I will be delighted if there's actually a different race. So since we first talked, elite documents strongly suggests that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade by a 5-4 majority and make it possible for individual states to outlaw abortion. Um, many such bills are already drafted and ready to go. This is extremely painful for Democrats, especially women. Can Biden do anything about it?
2: I actually think that there's very little that Democrats can do about this right now. I mean, they're really kind of in a bind. Ultimately, this decision is going to be left if it is, in fact, repudiated to um, left to the states. Um, It looks like the Senate is going to try to push through, for example, a bill that would codify the laws pertinent to Roe v. Wade. But there's very little chance that that's going to go through simply because it's not filibuster proof. I mean, I think it's very unlikely that Democrats could get kind of 10 Republicans to come over to their side. And so I think they're going to have to kind of live with this decision if, in fact, the draft that we saw is illustrative of what that ultimately is going to be.
1: And so therefore, does this underline his general impotence over issues like the filibuster and
2: the Joe Manchin problem? I think to a large extent that's been a big frustration for Joe Biden and Democrats more generally. Um, we're not just seeing that with this issue, but of course we saw it with the infrastructure bill uh, as well as the, the human infrastructure bill, Build Back Better, that Joe Biden has not been able to get through. So, of course, there have been lots of rumblings among Democrats about trying to eliminate the filibuster, but it's just not going to happen. Joe Manchin is not on board with that. And so Democrats have essentially just had to kind of live with this situation where anything that they get through either needs to get some Republican support or, you know, in the case of, for example, the pandemic relief bill, just push it through uh, a special process known as budget reconciliation.
1: We talked about the midterms, which are looking bad for the Democrats. Do you think this will change if Republican state legislatures are busy snatching away abortion rights? Will that fire up the Democratic
2: base? Yeah, I mean, I think that the jury is still out on how this potential repudiation of Roe v. Wade affects the upcoming midterms. Clearly, it's going to mobilize two groups progressives on the left who will be out in full force decrying this as a monumental assault on women's rights, and then evangelicals on the right who may even be more galvanized given that they've just secured this historic victory. I think to some extent, though, the increased activation of these groups may wash out in terms of the electoral math. And then you're left with the so-called silent majority in the middle. And the question will be, and how do they break on this abortion issue? Um, I do think that Democrats seem to have the numbers on their side here. A majority of voters, according to polling, don't want to see abortion completely prohibited. Of course, when you look at the numbers more deeply, the opinions of Americans tend to be a little bit more nuanced. And so on the margins, I do think Democrats can leverage a potential reversal road to turn out some voters to the polls especially suburban women. But I'm not sure if that's going to be enough to overcome some of these kind of bigger kitchen table issues surrounding the Biden economy, particularly as it relates to inflation. And looking further into the future, how might this play out in 2024? Well, I think to a large extent, whether Democrats can use this issue to their political advantage depends on how they frame this. And so I think a lot depends on kind of the messaging as it relates to voters. One real risk that I do think Democrats have to be concerned about is that the more left-wing elements of the party, the more progressive factions, they overreach on this issue and they kind of use overly strident rhetoric that's not in tune where most of the country is on abortion, and then those tactics backfire. And I think we have seen that maybe already a, a little bit. So ultimately, you know, I think that there are some political opportunities here for Democrats to really get out their base and mobilize it. Certainly, it's a huge issue, but I, I think that they do have to be very careful uh, about how they are pitching this and to not make it seem as though you know a good portion of Democrats are kind of outside the mainstream on this issue of uh, abortion, because Americans really, I think, do take relatively centrist positions. They don't want abortion completely outlawed. But at the same time, when you look at the data, um, most of them don't support, for example, abortion during the third trimester. And so it, it's, it's quite complex whenever you look at the numbers. Thank you
1: so much for joining me, Dr. Thomas Gift. Thanks, Dorian. I appreciate it. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend or giving us a rating on iTunes. You could also consider backing The Bunker on Patreon. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofrenievich, Alex Reese, and Alina Ganatra. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison,
0: theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.